Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. Um, we have with us today James Klieger. I meant to ask you this. Klieger. Okay. James Klieger, <laughs> who was with us back in uh, July 7th of 2020, and we were talking about um, his book, The 11th Inkblot. Is that what it was? The 11th Inkblot. Okay. Um, and he goes by Jim. Uh, Jim is has written another book called Tears Are Only Water. And I'm really happy to have him back. I always have to try to get the light right here. There we go. Um, I'm always happy to have him back, you know, because he's a very interesting person and he's a amazing writer. So welcome, Jim. It's so good to have you. Thank you, Randy. It's really kind for you to say that. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we met in, in 2020 in a, a, a phone um, uh, a, 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 yeah, we, we recorded it audio only. Yeah. It just it felt like such a comfortable conversation. So I was looking forward to doing this again, this time actually seeing you and meeting you. Yeah, it's so good to meet you too, face to face. It's this is so much better. It's so much personable. And I you know, I thought it would be harder to do, and maybe the first couple that I did um video were harder, but it's really not. Uh, so I, I feel pretty natural here in this. Uh, during the during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, I do a lot of psychological evaluations, neuropsychological evaluations, and so forth. I did everything. Uh, well, I didn't do anything for about two months. Everything was shut down. Then I started when nobody was meeting in person. I was doing all of my therapy and all of the evaluations uh, online, and that took some 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 gymnastics to to get everything uh because testing is a very interactive two-person process with mm. like manipulatives and so forth so that was that mm. was the feat and i'm i'm um glad to have done it but i don't look forward to ever having to to do that again much better to be in person but this works really you like well. the face to face yeah uh I like it too. And I mean, years ago, I, when I worked with my clients, I worked just on the phone and then I started doing Zoom with them. And um, at least that's my face to face, but I don't have local clients for the most part. I have some, but my clients are all over the country, all over the world. And so this way I can be face to face with them. And it's important to be able to see people's faces when they're talking to you, because that tells you a lot. Are you, um, do you just do these evaluations in your state or do you do them elsewhere? Primarily in the state, I, I, I could apply uh, via a, a, um, a, a process that would enable me uh, apply for a credential that would enable me to, to do things um, uh, across the country. Um, but I haven't done that. I have people coming from different states, sometimes countries, uh, to, to work with me. But most, most of what I do is local, Virginia, Maryland, D.C., so forth. Right. And um, do you are, are the evaluations that you do court ordered or can somebody just request them? No, the, these these are typically referred by therapists, uh, children, adolescents, uh, adults, uh, most often referred by therapists, uh, tutors, uh, educational consultants, um, school officials, uh, word of mouth parents. I do a lot of reevaluations of kids and their siblings and so forth over the years. So. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that fits in line with... Um, some of the work my partner does. So I'm going to tell her about that. And she's in Maryland as well. So, oh. yeah. Uh, okay. So today we're going to be talking about your book, Tears Are Only Water. Where did that title come from? Uh, it came from um, Brian Jack's book called Tamarung. Um, he wrote the Redwall series. And he had a line in there from a poem that he wrote called Tears Are Only Water. And um, 
there is a uh, uh, a man who does wonderful beach art that he that he has uh, on Instagram over the last several years. Very creative kinds of things. Well, he'll, he'll he'll wander the beach and he'll photograph interesting things. He'll maybe put some rocks or some seaweed together, and then always has a snippet of of a poem. His name is Jerry, um, uh, Jerry Smith. And, Jerry um, Smith, you said? Jerry Smith. He goes by like a hashtag, more sand than something. I, I, I can't. Okay. okay. But I, I get his, uh, <clears throat> his posts every day. And he had one, this beautiful thing. And it, it was um, a snippet from that poem, Tears Are Only Water. And somehow when I saw that, I thought, I was so moved by it. I thought, boy, I'm, I've got to use this, if not as a title. And I was playing with other titles as the book was sort of coming into being. But this just really struck me. And, and so uh, there's a character in the book that actually has that tattooed on her arm. And um, what's so beautiful about that is there's a lovely ambiguity about, about that. Mm-hmm. That I play with in the book. That, yeah, that, that yeah, can... exactly. Her interpretation, the person who has it tattooed on her arm, her interpretation is the opposite of what the intention truly is, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we're going to talk about your book today, which is, you know, it's a long book. There's a, it's just so interesting the way all the changes and the turns and things like that, but. Give us a kind of an idea of what the storyline is. Well, uh, you know, fundamentally, it's a story about early trauma uh, in various, in the lives of of, of three or four primary characters. Uh, There's a protagonist whose name is Carmine Ludke, uh, which is sort of a strange combination of, of different uh, uh, national uh, backgrounds. Uh, he's he's a, um, uh, a, a bookkeeper. He's a brilliant guy. He's kind of a mathematical savant. Throughout the book, um, you're left with a sense that he's that he maybe is uh, on the spectrum. He's certainly uh, neuro uh, uh, atypical in a lot of ways. Incredibly shy person with uh, a, uh, a speech impediment, he stutters, very anxious, but he comforts himself with uh, math by kind of going into his head, reciting uh, abstract formulas as a way of soothing himself, distracting himself. And we find out later in the book that it's also a way of staying connected to a, a father who was a, a, a physicist who disappeared. And um, in, in this story, and the the current one I'm working on, I'm working on another one now. I love to take a uh, a, a mental health theme uh, to humanize mental health struggles, and often trauma really lends itself to this. Uh, but in my new project, I have somebody who's a bipolar disorder with some trauma in her background. But anyway, to write a fictional account of somebody's struggle with their uh, um, with their their uh, trauma, their uh, mental illness, and then to have there be sort of a transformative experience that comes through a healing relationship, and so that's the story in this book. With this, oh, and I lo- and I love to blend in sort of a suspense, a mystery. Tears Are on the Water has a crime uh, um, drama as Carmine gets caught up in a, uh, a crime, he's blamed for a crime. And um, there's there are other characters again who, who become involved, an older sister, a, uh, a, a deputy, who the one that has the tears are only water tattooed on her forearm. Uh, she carries a lot of combat trauma from Afghanistan. <clears throat> the older sister and Carmine both carry a lot of Trauma from a narcissistic mother um, who treated them sort of as 
as uh, projections for her own disappointments and, and grandiosity. And then um, probably the most fun in this book is I, I had um, uh, Carmine become involved therapeutically with a very old Navajo psychologist at a state hospital who was psychoanalytically trained, but basically moved away from that, moved back to her uh, indigenous uh, healing traditions. And she has her own kind of uh, trauma in her background that's kind of awakened by working with, with Carmine. So in the 11th Ink Lot and in this book too, I, I want to bring you know, I want it to be an interesting story. I want there to be uh, humor. I want it to be moving, but I also want want there to be ambiguity, surprises. But I want to bring things in for a really um, uh, hopeful kind of landing. And I think I've done that as well. Yeah, and um, and he is he has narcolepsy in addition yeah. to that, right? And how does the narcolepsy fit into this whole storyline? Is it related well, to his trauma or, or I, I, yeah. Yes, it, it, it is. Um, because he's basically um, metaphorically sleepwalking through his life, distracting oh, wow. himself from um, uh, looking or thinking too deeply about his traumatic past. Because there's there's a distinct trauma that occurred when he was five years old. And um, later in his teens, he develops narcolepsy. So that the theme of falling to, falling asleep uh, is, is it, it, he actually has narcolepsy, but also it's a metaphor for his trying to not face himself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, functionally, it, it um, makes him really despite his brilliance, makes him unable to really um, uh, successfully adapt to the world. He could not ever sit through the CPA exam because he was falling asleep. So he can only work, work as sort of a low-level bookkeeper. And uh, he works at night because uh, he falls asleep during the day. He takes a lot of... He takes a lot of um, uh, amphetamines and stimulants to try to stay awake and that kind of uh, begins to affect his mental state and anyway so it's it's a I think there's a fun kind of underlying mystery a bit of uh, a, a crime involved um, in. and there's also a metaphysical aspect to this book right uh, uh, yes if you if you think about um, I, I think there was more of a kind of magic, uh, magical realism in the 11th thing plot, but clearly the healing ritual that he goes through with the Navajo healer, the psychologist, she tries to treat him in conventional talk therapy and, um, and, and then realizes that she can only really reach, reach him by doing a, a healing chant, a five day mm -hmm five-night chant. Yeah. So is, is narcolepsy generally developed uh, from trauma, or do some people just have it? I think it's primarily a neurological disorder um, that's probably not related to trauma. I took a bit of license in, in um, you, using that as, as uh I mean, it was never really explicit in the book that this is the cause of his narcolepsy, but I think I kind of used that um, as as a vehicle to to talk about kind of a massive defense against be, becoming aware, staying awake. And the thing I had a high school teacher who had it, and he was a history teacher, and he in the middle of sentences he just yeah not out and it was of course we made fun of him at that age but it was kind of weird though to see your teacher just keep nodding out in the middle of his sentences but it's that's that's got to be a very disruptive disorder to have that uh, the book really begins with this uh, right from the beginning there's a mystery as this um, character is working 
Ermine is working at night um, on accounts that are that are not balancing. Of course, he's this genius with numbers, but he can't make the numbers add up, uh, which is part of the underlying storyline that something's wrong here. And then um, he is visited by a woman who he had loved 20-something years earlier, and she disappeared. And all of a sudden, she shows up. And um, the reader really doesn't know if this is real or not. And he lets her into his office, and she's telling him something that's very, very, very important and how he's really needed to be a part of this scientific team. And in the midst of that, he has a, a, a sleeping episode and wakes up and she's gone and he tries to find her and, and then kind of goes down this wormhole. So, remember whether she was really, whether she was real or not. So, so you incorporate a lot of um, psychological, um, psychiatric conditions into this. Um, and you kind of put it all together in a storyline. What, um, besides the title that sparked you, what, um, what was your motivation to write this book? Motivation, well, I love writing. I had so much fun writing the 11th Think Blot that had been sort of percolating for 20 years or more mm -hmm. in my mind. You know, I've written a lot of professional books um, and, uh, and then do a lot of writing in my, uh, with the, with the reports and so forth. And, um, after I wrote the 11 Think Blood, I just really wanted to begin another story. And of course there were a lot of competing ideas and there was, there, the, the idea of having somebody working by themselves and then out of the blue somebody appears who they thought were dead or they thought was dead and 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 somebody appears and stands there and there's this line in his head which is and there she was or and there she is um there's something about that that just really grabbed me um you know after 20 years, 30 years, thinking this person is dead, who suddenly appears. And that's kind of where the story begins. Um, so I had no story written around that. Um, but, but somehow that was a compelling idea. Just like the title, the, the Tears Were Only Water, I just, I, I thought that was such a rich um, wording that I, that I wanted to craft a story and the story kind of evolves as I'm writing it. Characters come to life and so forth. And really the essence of that expression, tears are only water, are, is what? Well, the, the true meaning, you know, the, the, the faux meaning uh, uh, for the people who wanted to see that as, you know, you, 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 you crying is for babies. Uh, you, um, you, 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 everybody suffers loss and hurt and you just, um, buck up, you stuff it, you get over it, you get on with your life, you put it in a compartment and, uh, actually have a psychologist in the book who is very much into this, um, uh, mindset that you compartmentalize trauma, loss, grief, uh, you don't cry about it. There's too many victims. And uh, she meets this uh, this hardened uh, deputy who has this tattooed on her forearm. And she said, man, that's it. This woman is 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 living this this tough, stoic life. You don't let things get to you. But the true meaning is the opposite, that without um, uh, without tears, we we can't grow that water. Uh, helps um, plants grow. Uh, it brings life and vitality to people, to being, to the world, and that uh, you can't heal without tears. And so that's that's the 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 essence that that really is uh, is um, 
demonstrated actually the the uh, native healer helps the the psychologist who's Carmine's sister become aware of the true meaning. I li I like I really like that. I like that I like the uh, the sides of that. You know, mm -hmm. are there are there still um, psychological theories um, or methods that buy into that that we're supposed to repress our trauma? You know, I made this up. I made up this person. I made up the book she wrote. Um, and I crafted her in. So she's the daughter. She's Carmine's older sister. She's a haughty um, Amherst professor who's written a book called, um, I can't pull up the title of it, uh, uh, um, but it it is about, uh, well, let me, let me get this in. in okay, in, sure. Sure. It's right at the beginning of, of part one. Okay. And uh, the quote is, honestly, we've been force fed the Freudian fairy tale that it's better to recover memories, process and work through the past and that this will somehow set us free. When in truth, we're better off exhaling the mental detritus, finding a, a secure overhead compartment, and tucking away the past with all its warts, bruisings, and imperfections. Without such compartments, we're doomed to an endless chains of or endless claims of victimhood. Wow. Then and only then will be will we be fed, set free and finally be able to sleep soundly. And her book, uh, uh, Anne is the character. Her book was Unmasking the Cognitive Orchestrator of Maladaptive Thought and How to Silence Him. Cool. Wow. So I made all that up. Uh, it's a long way of addressing your question about are there theories that really um, Support that. Uh, would advocate this? Mm -hmm. The answer, I believe, is no. This is a caricature of, of how... Um, you know, adaptively, there are things that we need to, when we can't change them. Uh, we need to live with them. We need to somehow um, find ways of, of desensitizing them, of, of maybe uh, compartmentalizing um, certain things, but certainly not for major issues like trauma and loss. Right. So she, was a, she was a little bit of a straw person for me. Um, and of course, there is this um, uh, back and forth between her and um, uh, Hazel, Dr. Luca Chunai, the the Navajo um, psychologist who treats Carmine, who has her own book um, on uh, uh, trauma is a thief that robs us of memory and places our minds in a, sheep, a sleepy shadow land. Symbols of healing can light the path of awakening and set us free. And her book is From the Shadows of the Mind, Traumas and Symbols that Transform Them, 1980. Mm. And so I have fun making all this up. And, but did. obviously, it's sort of rhetorical in a sense that, mm. uh, that, that most people who would read this would say, well, but of course, you know, you heal by facing the past, by processing the, the 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 wounds and and that's how you that's how you move on. So. Well, you know, I like really like that you did that that you put that in the book because this is a mindset that um, I think many people were raised by raised with. It's like yeah. no, you let it go, you move on, you stuff it, you keep trudging on, and it's and then they hit like a wall at some point in their life where they can't keep it in anymore. And everything starts to seep through in, 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 in physical ways, in emotional ways, um, in their day-to-day -day living that all of a sudden it they can't keep it down anymore. And mm -hmm. right. So a lot of people um, have never felt feelings. They don't know what 
it mean what it what it feels like they don't know what it feels like and it's a terrifying thing which causes them to dissociate um and um isolate and you know things like that or or somatize to experience uh, the emotional through the body or to act it out uh and uh, i one of my earlier uh, earliest blogs was on talk masculinity and how a lot of boys have been socialized uh, to uh, view feelings as a as a as a sign of weakness. And um, again, tears are only water to be tough and, and uh, mm-hmm. tough stuff. Exactly. exactly. So yeah, I think that has it has a very strong message for people that may believe that and then can see through the storyline that that's not accurate. And, you know, we suffer quite a bit. Um, you know, I didn't read a bio for you. What, what is your background and um, why did you get interested in this field? Wow, great question. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a native of Colorado um, and uh, went to, uh, up to high school, uh, born and raised in the, in the Rockies. Um, I went, I had the, the, um, the uh, great opportunity of going to Harvard uh, for college. And well, that, was a, that was a wonderful kind of widening, broadening experience. Um, in fact, I have my 50, 50th reunion coming up um, this year. Where, where, has, where has the time gone? Um, That's your, that was your undergrad? was my undergrad. So then I came back to Colorado and did my, uh, got my doctorate at the University of Denver. And then I um, went to the, uh, well, I actually got a uh, scholarship from the Navy, they called Health Professional Scholarships. And they uh, supported, uh, they funded my graduate uh, uh, education. Um, and uh, I did an internship at the National Naval Medical Center. Then I went to, uh, I'm giving you the long view, Randy. That's okay. You can give me whatever view you want. <laughs> so, so I was in the service for, for um, about 13 years, uh, stationed at Pearl Harbor, stationed in San Diego, stationed at Bethesda. During the Gulf War, I deployed for about eight months on the USNS Comfort. Um, and then in, for two years during that 13 years, I left the service. Uh, I went on a fellowship at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, where I uh, got a postdoctoral fellowship. After I got out of the, the Navy in like uh, 1992, I went back to Topeka, was a staff psychologist and the director of uh, the postdoctoral fellowship at Manninger. I got my psychoanalytic training at the Topeka Institute of Psychoanalysis and um, left Manninger uh, in about um, two, a little after two, 2000, came to Maryland and have been practicing since. So I've been, I've been sort of all over but uh, been a clinical a lot center. of experiences though yeah 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 a lot of you're well-rounded people often get into the mental health field because they're trying to work through something in particular that um has been in their life maybe from childhood or whatever was that the case with you or did you just have this interest in this field um that's a Penetrating kind of question. Um, I don't. I I I don't have a uh, kind of hallmark event. Okay. I I was fortunate. You know, my my parents certainly had their own characters and proclivities and 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 vulnerabilities. But I I I felt fortunate um, uh, to to have been uh, cared for and had a a pretty uh, a non-chaotic. Um, a, a, I knew that my parents were not happy. 
but managed to distract myself, not with mathematical formulas, but with my own interests, sports, and so forth. Um, I think I, I felt an, an, an interest in, in helping people. My mother was a, a wonderful person who was a nurse. And I think I have the kind of the good mother inside, fortunate to have that. Um, but, you know, as, as you grow up in the field, you become aware of all of your uh, foibles and your you know, vulnerabilities that, that probably drew you to the field. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's, it's wonderful that you that you don't have come from a, a background like that. And um, you just were interested in, in the workings of the mind, right? Yeah, I, I, I really was very early. And I think it started out with this with this wish to do something to, quote, help people. And then I thought, no, you know, so I got more into graduate school, I need to really view it less in a mushy way like that, more in terms of being interested in the workings of the mind and so mm -hmm. forth. And I really have been, but I think there's always been that, that, that desire to connect with people, uh, whether it's through therapy or, or doing, um, how long did you practice um, psychotherapy? Uh, well, I still see a couple of people, but I, I, I did for, I think I was, I was really doing a, a, a lot of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, maybe up till 2016, and then began to move more into, I was always doing evaluations too, but began mm -hmm. more strictly. Right. right. So a lot of people listening to the show today uh, have suffered trauma, complex trauma. And um, I know before we went on air, you mentioned complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is not a recognized um, syndrome by many mental health professionals. And it's certainly not in the DSM-5. Um, how do you describe complex PTSD? Well, you're right. It's not in the five or the DSM-5 TR. It's in the ICD-11, uh, which is important. Um, so uh, complex trauma uh, is, um, and I mentioned to you before, I've just written a blog that I kind of like about hidden trauma. And um, I mentioned uh, CPTSD in, in there, but complex trauma is um, can can goes by other other names. Um, uh, if it occurs early in life, which often it does, uh, people can uh, sometimes refer to it as relational trauma or developmental trauma disorder, and it basically uh, has to do with physical sexual, emotional, or verbal abuse, or woeful neglect or parental uninvolvement um, during tender developmental um, years. So it's trauma that occurs in the crucible of a really important relationship that okay. goes on and on that's inescapable. Another form of a source of complex trauma would be somebody who has been um, uh, abused, uh, tortured, uh, in a in either incarcerated and abused, or tortured over time, where where one cannot escape that. We usually think of PTSD as more high impact, visible events. Uh, Certainly, PTSD got its sort of its, its early bones, if you will, uh, right at the end of the Vietnam War. There was a lot of focus on combat trauma, and then on rape and assaults and natural disasters, where there's big, high-impact, life-threatening events. And what gets overlooked, um, I think, are some of the more subtle forms that can be kind of chronic. Um, certainly, complex PTSD is recognized as as a um, as a type of PTSD where you have all the same kinds of symptoms of re-experiencing of the trauma, 
avoidance of trauma uh, uh, stimuli, uh, the situations that are reminiscent of the trauma. Hypervigilance. Activation, yes, hypervigilance, hyperactivation. In addition, um, there's a, um, a betrayal of trust, so that uh, really affects being able to attach and trust people. It affects being able to be intimate. Uh, it damages an individual's sense of self. If you think of trauma that gets woven into development, mm. you know, development's hard enough as it is, but if you have a traumatic uh, um, relationship that's woven into that, that really has far-reaching effects on one's ability to regulate and, and soothe oneself. It damages a sense of self. So complex trauma is is a very serious kind of legacy of uh, relational abuse. Mm. And what you described is the symptoms of or the experience of someone who has been in a narcissistic a narcissistically abusive right. relationship. And, and so a lot of people who are listening are, uh, have had that experience either in childhood or in adulthood. Um, generally when they have it in adulthood, not always, but it, it often stems from the issues that you explained, the loss of self, sense of self and those kind of things that they get into um, adulthood and they, they just, aren't fully equipped for adulthood. And then it's just trauma upon trauma upon trauma, um, which was my my background, my my experience. And it's it's pretty hard to break. But, uh, you know, I think it's so important that that this is accepted. And so you said the the third thing that you said where it is shown it. What is that? What is that reference? What do you mean? Uh, you said, so I said it's not in the DSM-5 or the... The, IC, the ICD-11, the International uh, Classification of, of Diseases by the World Health Organization. Okay. The ICD-11 came out in like 2022. Okay. It, it is a bona fide separate um, uh, uh, entity. Mm. So, so the rest of the world sees it that way. I bet in the the next iteration of the DSM, it will be because there's lots of literature on it. Hmm. That's really interesting. So that's a fairly new publication. So this yeah. um, supersedes the whole uh, the whole process that the psychiatric American Psychiatric Association goes through in putting something in the the DSM. And they're fairly slow. Well, not fair. They're very slow <laughs> in moving along that way. So it's it's uh, it really for for like um, uh, insurance billing. A lot of insurance companies accept uh, the ICD. Okay. Codes and okay. not the DSM. So it's it's very substantial. That's really really interesting. I'm I'm going to look. That's see. That's new for me. Thank you for sharing that. Um, the area of narcissistic abuse is something that I feel is not, has not been addressed, uh, just in, in the psychology community, except for those who have specialized in this, seen a lot of it, really looked into it out of the box thinkers. Does the ICD 11 talk about uh, what happens to someone that's been who's been abused? Um, I I I I think it would be incorporated under that rubric of a of an inescapable relationship, okay. form of physical, mental, verbal, emotional mm -hmm. use. Okay. Uh, are the are, are the um, universities using that? in training therapists now, now that it's come out? Oh, sure. Okay, good. Yeah, That's yeah, great. I believe so. You mentioned that it hasn't been recognized um, by mental health professionals. I will out myself here um, that in our conversation before we, we went on air, I said to you, what did I say, that, that narcissistic abuse 
is probably one of those hidden kinds of traumas. And you said not probably. So I, I just completed this blog. I think I've mentioned it mm-hmm. times on hidden trauma. And I list things like bully, bullying, victimization, um, religious um, uh, trauma syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, kids who are indoctrinated into a rigid authoritarian kind of religious sect, yes. and, then, and then leave that. The, 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 and um, uh, miscarriage, abortion, um, uh, um, uh, migrants, uh, poverty. So I go through a lot of things that many people um, uh, don't view as, tra- as traumatization. Um, they either ignore it, they try to normalize it, things that are hard to speak about. But in, in that, I, I will admit, I, I did not include that, and I should have. That's okay. That's a full, okay. It's an adult form of, of complex PTSD, where you are involved in a web, that you can't escape. And other people could say, well, you know, sure, you, you could, you could leave the the bastard, but um, that that's, that's impossible to do for a lot of people who are involved in this, in this sort of reenactment, this sort of repetition. That's, that's so true. Um, And and it's, the methods that are used by narcissists, it's, it, this is why I'm so invested in this work, because they're such dangerous people. Um, the methods that they use just infiltrate people's every part of their being and, yeah. uh, and take them over. And people on the outside, once they get out of it, if they're lucky enough to do that, um, they usually have a lot of shame over why they didn't see it. But when you're enmeshed in a relationship like that, you're literally blinded. The narcissist has the ability to blind you. You're you're segueing, at least for me, into something that I've been thinking a lot about Mm -hmm. and want to write about, either as a blog um, or in a newsletter, my newsletter. And that is about societal trauma. Mm. What happens um, in uh, society, in our country, and probably the world, um, as a result of events that have happened over the last twenty years? Um, and you talk again. I don't. I. I don't. I, I don't get really political or in 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 my writing. Um, clearly, I, I think my orientation comes through. Um, but but what you're describing about a narcissistic person who weaves this sort of pseudo reality and people get caught up in it and they lose their moorings and they can't see what's happening. I mean, and the cleverness of the person who is perpetrating lie after lie. And anyway, politics, government. Politics and uh, yes, yes, it's, yeah, it's rampant. Not, it's rampant in governments. It's been traumatized, and um, certainly by the uh, 2016 election, uh, by COVID, um, and by 2020 uh, uh, events. And I think there's um, aftershocks. There's reverberations. There's like re-experiencing of the of the trauma and hyper arousal on a societal level but we're still we're not done with it no we're not done with it we're 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 really um as a collective conscious we're really getting sicker and sicker um as a result of it and uh it's hard to resist i mean you know you really have to be able to get the perspective of what's really happening in order to resist it but um, not many people have that experience or education to be able to see through it. It's definitely, you're definitely right that this has affected um, collective conscious society. It, it, it really is. Uh, there's a lot of blindness. I think, the- I, I think uh, what I want to do is sort of, and I'm, I'm sure I'm by no means um, 
this isn't by no means a novel idea, but it just, it's interesting how I think you can look at this sort of through a trauma lens. Mm. We're not talking about individuals, we're talking about um, a society that's been buffeted um, by, I mean, think about gun violence. It's just, it's, it's like helplessness, trauma helplessness, and it keeps happening. We keep re-experiencing it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. It, it is very interesting. And I hope that we can weave our way out of it. And, you know, well, it may happen one person at a time, or there may be a shift in consciousness. I'm not really sure. I think it's going to be a shift in consciousness or uh, a shift in the way we allow our governments to form or something. Something has to change. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, you know, but narcissistic abuse is... It's so all-encompassing. And what I find is um, when people are coming out of it, because I can get somebody out of this. I can help them to deprogram, reprogram, just through the way I talk to them. Um, But they are very impatient with themselves. They feel like they should be okay. Because looking at it from the outside in, it doesn't look as complex as it truly is. I don't think people understand the, the severity, the depths of what they've been exposed to and um, and the way that they've been indoctrinated, their minds and things like that. And so I have to say to people all the time, you can't rush this. But then the friends on the outside, everybody on the outside is saying, get over it, okay? He was a schmuck, get over it. <laughs> you know, um, move on. Come on out. Let's y'all have fun. And that is not what's happening. And you know, the the more we can educate people, the better, so that they understand somebody that's actually going through this. It's it's horrible. Yeah, they're deep roots um, that, that you have to work with very carefully. Very deep roots. But again, it it the the healing occurs in the context of a of a of a relationship, a trusting relationship. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. You know, I had um, I had a trauma therapist on many years ago. I don't even remember how long ago. And I think I asked her the question, what is the, the best, um, best way to heal PTSD? And she said exactly what you said, trusting the person that's helping you. I think that's the, the best the key ingredient in effective psychotherapy is not so much the model you use, um, but it's who you are. It's the, it's the qualities of the individual. And, um, uh, and, and if, if, if you're lucky to find a therapist, uh, no matter what their orientation is, uh, we all have our preferences. But fundamentally, I, th- I think it's a human relationship with someone who's who's safe and 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 wise and uh, centered and, and and committed and committed to your healing, That's you know? right. <laughs> exactly. So um, we're coming down to the end, but is there anything else that you want to tell us about this book, Tears of Only Water? And I always well, have it back. Yeah. Yes, and that's that. That um, I am. I'm writing a sequel, that, which uh, I'm about eight chapters into, or so. And this is this is a book that's going to be called Whispers, and again, it's going to follow the same sort of of uh, general um, theme of a a uh, individual who's struggling with. Uh, mental illness there will be some trauma in her background and and then there is going to be uh, a, a, a a crime involved and uh, also uh, a, a healing uh, relationship those are sort of 
if, if I just thought if there's anything formulaic about the books I write, it's, it's those uh, essential components. Mm -hmm. And I'll bring back several of the characters from Cheers Are Only Water. I would like to mention my website, which is J. Herman Kleiger. That's, that's the name I write by, J. Herman Kleiger. Uh, all one word, J, or I'm sorry, I think my website is J, either the one word or J period, Herman Kleiger. K-L-E-I-G-E-R. Yeah. com is my website. And um, it has all the blogs I've written. Um, and uh, um, I have a newsletter coming out that will tease a bit about the new book and talk about this book. So we can sign, they can sign up to subscribe to your sure. website and then receive all the updates, right? I should mention there's a free giveaway on Goodreads hmm. okay. for a free giveaway um, uh, until February 28th. And that's a good way to get on uh, the mailing list for newsletter oh, and also to win a free book. Okay. That's that's great. That's wonderful. I'm glad that you you share that. Yeah, I, you know, I can't. I, I write nonfiction. I'm not a fiction writer. I don't have that imagination. But I I love that you do, uh, because you're reaching people. They're learning about mental illness while they're enjoying the read. I mean, it's you know, it's fiction per se, but it's really not. The message is really powerful. And that's a great way to get through to those who maybe never thought about this stuff. Well, um, I'm, I'm certainly not the first to do this. Uh, I have a colleague named Jeffrey Berman, who's an English professor who's coming out with a book called Psychoanalytic Fiction Writers. Mm -hmm. And he actually has different chapters uh, about um, psychoanalysts who have who have written fiction and he's included the 11th ink plot as one of his chapters wow. but his idea it's very interesting is that um uh not a lot of analysts do this um or mental health professionals but uh um it often occurs later in one's career when it doesn't and we don't feel as we're not practicing as much there's still lots of experience and, and sort of can continue practicing, if you will, through writing stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's wonderful. And um, the book is excellent. I highly recommend it to everybody. Go pick up a copy and maybe try to win your free copy. It's so good to see you. So you'll let me know when the sequel comes out. I will. Thank you, Randy. And I'll send you, I'll send you some of those blogs. Yeah. And I'll send you what I told you. Just, I'm going to send you. Yeah. The, the, the you story. have a copy of my book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind? I do. I'm, okay, I'm, great. Good. Okay. Because I would, I would offer to send you one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So nice to see you. Great and to see really, you. It was a very comfortable conversation. It was a lot of fun. Could talk to you for longer. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, sure. Well, we can always talk. That's right. Stay well. It's great <laughs> to see you. Okay. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.